over the last five years or so been very much interested in uh, the, uh, the intersection between wearable technology and where we currently seem to sit and we've had some we heard some discussions there where Danny pictured um, current scenarios of learning management systems uh, content management systems that interface predominantly with handheld devices and uh, um, or static PC systems and um, Recently, I returned from a conference in Toronto where wearable technologies were positioned uh, to be months away, not, not years away. And I had the privilege of meeting with a number of individuals who had, and who do, uh, have a great deal of uh, knowledge in the wearable technology space where they uh, indicated that they don't think it's a matter of um, a light years away, but a matter of months where... Uh, these large corporations like Google will start to um, make and ensure that technologies are popular, accessible, affordable, and in fact put a filter in front of uh, certain people's point of view and allow that point of view to be an intelligent connected system and provide a different service. So I have a few slides here. Um, I recently was invited to a, uh, have a coffee with a, a colleague at ANU and that individual uh, indicated to me that he'd overheard a conversation a couple of years ago of mine and uh, has, was interested in knowing further uh, about what I had spoken about at the time and decided to start mapping me. And I didn't realise who he was and he, he's asked for, to be incognito and not to be declared. All I'll say is that he is an ANU staff member. And... Uh, he produced this uh, map, uh, a very um, on an A3 sheet of paper, as we had a coffee. I found that quite um, um, wasn't. It was it was a very unusual sort of encounter, and I just realised after a period of time, as we all do, that much of what we do is being tracked, mapped, and so on as well. So I'm very much interested in the identity management of my own identity and what these systems are doing in relation to my own identity and how can, not only can these identity management systems be utilised in an educational context, but how essentially, where does this mobile device fit into that picture? And part of the panel session this, this afternoon is to pose a series of more serious questions to these people who are colleagues and friends and, and are representative of ICT Gaggle, which is the founding, uh, underpinning foundation for the discussion today. And I'd like you to have a consider where this sits with your own uh, personal lives in terms of identity management, mobile wearable technologies and the systems that we're fast moving into. This is the coffee discussion. So he provided a series, he, he was listening to my terms and mapping and thinking through the key terms and building them into a, a better picture for himself in a, in a currency of the day. I return back to my computer three or four hours later and received an email he already articulated that into another map and continues to do that. I discovered that things in this environment that I didn't quite understand myself, I didn't realise that Jennifer Heath in actual fact had moved into a learning analytics environment through UOW. Uh, it was in some way very much connected with George Siemens that these two people are going to be talking with next week and so on. And there were a series of uh, discoveries in there that... Um, perhaps paint a picture of me that I didn't 
quite, or perhaps don't quite agree with either. So whether I vote for Julian's party in September or for the Greens is perhaps influencing pictures as well. And I'm seeing things about myself out there that are, uh, are um, quite frightening in some ways. But the reality is when I added collusion for Chrome to my Chrome browser just last week, over one day I tracked 170 different vendors who were all sucking, connecting and joining data, my own personal data, in a way that was beneficial for their own practice as well. So the true picture is not a hand-drawn picture of people's interpretation of me. In actual fact, it's a machine-made connection that we need to think about, a network connectivity that we're all part of and we're all uh, currently being and currently using this, that, user, that data is being used of us. So the key things that I have and will be focused on in the next two or three years and finishing this PhD is really around what sort of aspects and effects is this having on technology and society more broadly. And if we look at more broadly technology, technology and society, so here are some of the key terms that are coming out that are where people are most um, uh, connected and where things are having an impact. Now that tag cloud is very, very different to the tag cloud that I imagined it would be last year or, or saw, in fact, a few years ago as well. That the shift in where things are going is very much towards location-based servicing. Um, augmented reality, quantified self, you can see where it appears in there, sensors and social networking. The, the picture has, has sharply changed in five years. So this is me. This is somebody's interpretation of me again. Um, and this is a device, it's a life-logging device, a very small life-logging device that monitors where I am at any given time and uh, produces some very, very candid pictures of other people. Um, it doesn't record voice. It doesn't record it very much at all except photos, very sharp photos of who I'm in proximity to. It also has an application that uh, essentially to download those images, I need to plug them into somewhere. So it plugs into a system, but I can't see the images. The images go to somebody else's server. And all of that data is stitched and analysed. And back through my phone, I add an app. And then I can see my life log in that environment. And the next stage of that life log is actually to select a series of images and have them auto-stitched into a short burst video and distributed via social networks. So what the next level is, is about the change in our role as a subject to other people. Because what I'm wearing is set to explode everywhere. This is not a futures technology. This is a technology we saw when we were in Toronto and Washington attending the Computer Freedom and Privacy Conference. These are technologies like we saw of the laptop and then moving towards the iPad. What we're picturing here, what you're seeing, are actual technologies that are starting to move very fast towards that. Michael, can you stand up for a minute? Turn around. <laughs> Michael's wearing a life-logging camera that perhaps is a 25-year-old technology. And that particular technology was used to develop search engines for dementia patients within a health and well-being um, perspective. Essentially, it takes a photo every 15 seconds and it stitches those together. And the data is essentially owned by a research group in Dublin University uh, through Cahal Garan and his group 
which are very much into the SenseCam community. They are also, he, uh, Cahol has been wearing the same device consistently for five years. It's become a normalized function of his, of his research group. Uh, his research group is in higher ed and is moving into vocational training very quickly, autism and various other areas. It's becoming a fairly normalized technology. What I'd like for you to consider is these technologies that are AR that you saw today currently are, utilize, are utilizing a handheld technology. This is a technology that requires you to have a, to, for your, your hands to be encumbered to experience that environment. But the leapfrog effect is that this particular technology here is quite likely to jump past that very fast. These technologies, uh, according to a Gartner report that was released with only eight months worth of data uh, against that, is that, that if the Google Glass-based device was to be sold tomorrow for a price point of $750, be likely to be more than 20 million Americans would buy the device. But the most interesting part of the study was the, was the statistical analysis they did on a range of interviews with many people, tens of thousands of people. They said, knowing that it's a network device and that it can take photos and videos, is actually a bone conductor to your ear, is identified, is remote controlled, is actually in actual fact leased from the company it's not owned, a whole range of other things that we don't usually look to in the terms and conditions, is that the, that of those um, buyers, those wearers, that more than 60% of those people indicated that they would wear it in their workplace, that they would wear it as a function because they knew that the apps would be beneficial to their profession, most importantly, that they would wear it in their family context as well, that they wouldn't essentially take the device off like a pair of glasses. They would wear it as a functioning device to how they interacted with their world. And that was over a very robust study from, from an independent body about that particular device. So the questions that I have and I'll pose to the, to the panel, who may wish to answer them in order or mix that up, and you may wish to have questions of the panel, Please feel free to ask the panel any questions or make comments about how you feel about the questions I'm asking, not just about what they are in the context of um, uh, whether they fit into your current reality or not. I'd like to know from people how they, whether they've seen examples of this, what they feel about interacting with somebody who could maybe be recording them consistently, who may be using the Wink app that takes a photo that sends it out to a Facebook environment without their subject permission, identified by name as well. So the present reality in Walmart is this. Yes, yeah. It engenders all sorts of responses every time that it's brought up. And part of the mapping of the device is actually for the employee to be tasked not for the employee to experience some form of wonderful rotating building or view of, it's actually an instructional device and that the instructions are automated. They're not there for entertainment. So that individual has been instructed to pick apps, pick product, assemble orders and make sure that they get out in time against a consistent trail. We've seen the mechanization of that automation and the collapse of roles within McDonald's. The same things are happening now in, very, in lots of other environments. So if you think of this from a 
industry training environment context. I think it, this is this is of course uh, a posed prototype. Those glasses you can see don't even fit properly on the right ear lobe. I can pick it to pieces, but I can guarantee you that it is an actual fact being mapped very quickly right now. So the principal question is, overarching is, are you or are we ready for that? And where does that fit within the educational context? First question that I have of the panel. Who, by the way, are Helen Lynch from CSU, Michael Coughlin from TAFE SA, and um, Stephen Ridgeway from Sydney Institute of Technology. What does the term wearable computing mean to you? I'm going to give you the mic and so that we've got this on the um, record. Looks like I get first dibs. <laughs> um, I've been giving this a lot of thought. It's, I think it's quite a challenging concept, wearable technologies, and I think some of the challenges are really in the fact that we're talking about technologies on the body, for one, for one thing. We're talking about technologies that collect data and send data from the body and from the environment around the body. And then we're talking technologies that bring data to the body and to the environment around the body. So, and what worries me in a sense about those things, and this is the, maybe I'm not ready for it, uh, is that when those things are happening in a seamless way and that technology is attached to me, I become unmindful of that and I become unaware and too accepting of what is going on and not watchful. I, and in that carelessness and inattention, this is where we can step into times of violating people's privacy, violating our own privacy. And that, for me, that's where that um, conundrum is. And the, it makes me think of um, Professor Greenfield from the Britain. She was talking in a lecture one time about, yeah, um, about uh, if a, if about making robots mimic humans. She said, all an alien will need to do is smile at us when we're used to a smiling robot and they can do whatever they want because we will just respond without thinking about it. And that's the same process. If you're wearing technology, you will respond and act and lose consciousness of it, not critique it. I think there's some really dangerous privacy issues in that. And I've never worn a piece of technology, so I'd like to see what that feels like and how forgetful I become. Yeah. Hi, folks. I just want to preface everything I say by adding that I'm no expert in this field. I've worked with Alex for a long time. I've worked in educational technology for a long time. And like many of us, I have opinions about these things, but I certainly don't have the answers. I, just to take up your point before I answer the question up there about robots, you might be aware of a woman called Sherry Turkle who wrote a long book about the uh, relationship between people and technology and she actually has noticed a change. I think uh, over about 30 years and she uses the example of a question like if she had asked people 30 years ago, uh, how do you feel about the idea of a, uh, a robot taking care of you for people who are particularly old and living on their own? And 30 years ago, the answer was, don't be ridiculous. Of course not. Now the answer is, oh yeah, maybe. So there has been a collective shift, even with people who aren't directly connected to the kinds of work we do in the general populace about the idea 
of technology and robots and artificial intelligence and all the rest of it. This question up there, I mean, there's a million ways we can answer it. What does it mean to me? I'm just going to focus on the two things that I think that really are at the front and centre of the conversation here today, and it's about the stuff that records data, either about me or about you, with or without your permission, and transmits that out, or is, that I've got access to, that you don't know about, or maybe you do. And the other part of it is the embedded stuff, where you know there are already nightclubs in the world, apparently, where you don't get in unless you can show that you've been chipped. And that's the only way you get access. So that means you're permanently tracked and permanently able to be located by technology, which obviously has huge implications for your own, I like your violation of your own privacy. It's a kind of paradoxical notion. So that's what I think about when I think about wearable technology. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um... Look, um, obviously, none of us are really experts in this field. It's, a, it's an emerging space. But to me, uh, personally, wearable technologies really are about this idea of the, the ubiquity of the device, the, the device that's connected, uh, that's always with you, uh, possibly in you or on you, um, as you as you alluded to with the embedding, of course. And I, uh, I think... It also disrupts our sense of self-identity. So perhaps it's disrupting our, our sense of our body, where our body is, where, where, what our body is connected to. This idea of where our body ends, if it's connected permanently to a network, then perhaps it's part of a wider network. It becomes connected in that way. Uh, so that's an interesting idea. Um, I think. I think, like a lot of technologies, it both augments us and enhances it can also potentially damage us. You know, technology is not essentially a liberatory um, force. It's also an oppressive force. The two things exist simultaneously. I think that, um, you know, we're seeing, we'll probably see wearable technologies emerge in fairly benign ways, which we which we don't think about. I mean, I think of biomedical implants that exist now where people are implanting electrical devices in the brain that can anticipate, say, a, 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 an asthma attack or a, an epileptic fit and respond before you would be consciously aware of that and apply electrical stimuli to prevent the attack occurring. Now, most of us wouldn't have an issue about that. We think, well, that's a great piece of technology. And it is, you know, in a sense, a piece of wearable technology. It's embedded. Uh, but I suppose that's how it'll probably start to creep in, these sort of positive things that we can't question or don't question, and then suddenly it's being used for the nightclub chipping, you know. Uh, and I suspect most of the people who opt for that are very willing. You know, they want to be in that space, and they, they opt to... The way to get in there is to have an embedded chip, a badge of honour, yeah, to have it. So... Uh, yeah, it's like a lot of things, a bit like IVF technologies. On one hand, it seems like a really, really, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of technologies that are quite controversial that have very um, potentially paradigm transforming consequences. Often, often start in these areas that have really positive uh, and liberatory outcomes for the human condition, like IVF, where someone no one would question a childless middle class couple. It perish the thought, but there are a whole set of other issues that surround IVF, uh, cloning, 
trafficking of human uh, DNA, trafficking of children, all of that uh, surround that as well. So I think wearable technologies will also have a lot of those sorts of issues associated with it. Hmm. Well, that's a big question. Uh, I've got the mic, so I'll well have a go at it myself. Uh, I think, uh, you know, privacy is a highly codified and complex um, notion. And first of all, it's highly uh, culturally specific. So how privacy is uh, uh, constituted in, say, Germany, it's very different to the US, for instance. You see something like playing out with the German, you know, Germans are very happy to get naked uh, but the, very disturbed by Google uh, Street View. Mm. So, whereas for us, perhaps we're not so keen about getting naked, but by the way, but C Street View is perfectly fine. Uh, so, you know, so that's one thing. But I, I think the whole idea of privacy in post-industrial hyper-connected societies is one that is changing rapidly. And if you have a look over, the, you know, the, I suppose the uh, period which we call modernity, the private was constituted as the realm of the domestic, the realm of the feminine, the realm of the body, the realm of emotions, whereas the realm of the public was seen as the realm of exchange between rational uh, actors in civic space. So you see this, uh, you know, the public versus the private, that sort of dualism in modern industrial societies. Habermas talks a lot about this, and, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of, in a lot of sociology he's talked about the rationalising forces of modernity uh, increasingly have eroded that which was once constituted as private. So, for instance, uh, a good example uh, is once uh, looking after children was something that was done purely in the in the private domain, but increasingly this has been taken over by modern uh, rational institutions, childcare, schools, um, etc. Likewise, uh, think of aged care in pre-modern societies. Uh, this is done primarily by the family, primarily by women, uh, but but now we have modern aged care. Uh, industry. So we're seeing a, perhaps a contraction in that which is considered private. So uh, that's one force that's happening, that sort of, you know, forces of modernity. But I think, you know, with hyper-connectivity, uh, we, we're seeing even greater uh, changes. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I don't think any of us five years ago would have thought the degree to which people were prepared to give up very, what was once considered private information into social networks. Uh, I think it's it's been a breathtaking transformation there. Mm. I think uh, Facebook released some figures this week. They said that, was it, did I say 50% or was it 60%? No, 30% of Americans actually log into Facebook once a day. Was it 50% here? Uh, and all of those people are uploading um, uh, what was once considered very personal and private information. So that's a transformation. I mean, the whole evolution of Facebook has been one in which that org Facebook, the organisation, has constantly pushed the boundaries of, of um, privacy, often to the, sh to the uh, negative reaction of the users, only to pull back a bit, but not, as not back to where they were. So they've actually moved the bar, they keep moving the bar on, uh, on privacy. And I think we're seeing that happening in lots of areas. And 
things like Google Glass are just another another step, I think. Yeah. I just want to refer back to something that was on a slide Alex had up about are we ready? And I think it was about five years ago that I started asking a question that I used to do in presentations, are we ready for social media? So I, it was, it's kind of, are we now ready for wearable computing? And there's always going to be something else that we're going to ask, are we ready for it? So it's not an unusual situation. Does this privacy still exist? Well, it's kind of implicit or assumed, isn't it, that uh, it was a good thing? And I'd, I'd just throw that out initially, but it all it is culturally based. And I was telling Stefan at lunchtime about something I've never forgotten when I spent some months in a village in Sri Lanka. And as I did at the time, pre-internet days, I used to write in a book like this, as you can see I still do. And whenever I did that, I'd set aside time, I'd sit and I'd write in my diary because it was a very kind of poorest little space that I lived in, I'd have six or eight people watching me. And if, whether I wrote for 10 minutes or a half an hour, I had an audience. And they'd smile politely when I looked at them and I'd just wonder what the hell was so fascinating about this whole thing. And eventually I spoke to the guy, Titus, his name was, he was kind of our host, and I said, why do they watch me when I write in my diary? And he said, well, they're keeping you company for one. You couldn't possibly want to be alone, because they never were. Privacy was not something that entered their realm. And the other thing they were doing was um, just being infinitely curious about why would you choose to be alone and do something alone? So they were kind of compensated for my stupidity. You think you're going to be alone, don't be silly, we're here, you know? And so I kind of provocatively mentioned, you know, implicit in privacy is the notion that it's a good thing. Well, I've been reading a book by a guy called Jeff Jarvis that some of you will know about called Public Parts, which really does unravel your attachment to the notion of privacy, and he basically says privacy lets you get away with really bad stuff. It allows you to keep hidden all of these things which should probably be better off aired, because if they were aired, you'd fix them, because you'd never walk down the street with those same kind of set of flaws everybody knew about them, you'd fix them up. So he says publicness is a very powerful tool to kind of improve who we are. So interesting argument. Um, I think the answer is no, frankly. I think it's kind of in most senses that we understand it, privacy has gone. And I think you can still be you know, private inside your thoughts internally, but in terms of what you do out there in the, in the world, there are just so many things that we do in places we go, things that we do, stuff that we share on Facebook. We seem to have collectively, as a species, almost without the conversation, and I guess that's a point I'd like to come back to later, without the conversation, we've kind of collectively decided privacy is gone. Doesn't matter. Um, very good point, Michael. I, I myself believe that privacy disappeared with Facebook. And when I first joined up Facebook, I thought, everyone's going to see all this. What does that mean? And I took a strategy that at that point and with all so social media from that point on to forget about privacy and focus only on those things that I need to protect my identity because that in fact is what becomes more important than your privacy. With my identity are things that protect my bank accounts my, um, and, and important things like that, my police records, my tax records 
And everything else, like photos of where I'm going or photos of what I'm doing, is really not important in those ways. So the privacy, my sense of privacy shrunk when I got my first Facebook account and I focused on not putting my birthday up there because that's a piece of my private life that identifies me to my banking institution. Um, not putting too many pictures of myself up there because that can be used to, of my um, licence. Not putting any photos that might look like around my licence up there. So focusing on that, that's my response to the issue of privacy still exists because I don't really think it does, Michael, but identity does and I want to protect that and that comes merged with privacy. And it's a very big challenge with all this wearable technology. Mm. Yeah. I hope none of those photos of me look like my, my driver's license. <laughs> Alex, maybe we should ask people here in the room if they'd Absolutely. like Absolutely. Does anybody have a comment? Question. Yeah, that would be a good segue. If you put your hand up... Um, Shouldn't we just redefine privacy? I'm not going to put the question up. Well, we have we have the co-chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation in the room, and I wonder if wonder if that person's able to wear that hat and answer that one. Addressing the question that the gentleman's asked. So privacy has many definitions, and it depends which, which one you're talking about. Uh, we have bodily privacy, locational privacy, information privacy, privacy as in the right to be let alone. Um, people like to not investigate, I think, um, existing definitions of privacy. You know, it's easy to say privacy is dead, but actually we still maintain bodily privacy. For instance, if we don't um, accept uh, the intrusion of um, things that cut or imprint or come into the body. Okay, so uh, search and seizure laws, for example, no one must intrude your body unless, you know, that's why uh, drug carriers who swallow the drugs, for example, um, uh, attempt to do certain things to them um, if they don't explode inside their bodies um, because actually penetrating the body is a very fine line of what you can do in a policing sense. Uh, informational privacy, uh, Roger Clark down the road at ANU has talked about data valence. Mm. Um, MG Michael from Wollongong Uni has talked about uber valence and locational privacy. Um, currently we have existing laws in Australia, so if anyone tells me locational privacy is dead, it's incorrect. The Surveillance Device Act says you must not track an individual or monitor them. Um, uh, so the Surveillance Device Act, if anyone wants to read that, says that no one can put a GPS on you and track your every, every location. In fact, they can't even put a GPS on your car without your consent and track your location. It's against the law. There have been several court cases in America which indicate some uh, government employees were handed a mobile phone, weren't told of the fine print down the bottom, e.g. in 2007 October. We're talking about cases that far back. A government employee who was a teacher was given a mobile phone um, in that context, they were um, charging um, for time. I mean, the government agency said that they were charging for time that they hadn't um, actually committed to the teaching practice. And they proved that by the location coordinates of the mobile phone, which was time stamped and date stamped. That person took the government agency to court and said, I was never informed that I was being tracked. Please give me my job back. 
and he won the court case. After that point, the government employee was told, you know, you're given a mobile phone, we are tracking you. And people don't know that they are being tracked. That's the question. And we have different laws, and I'll just indicate a few of them in Australia. The Privacy Act, the Telecommunications Act, the Telecommunications Interception Act, the Surveillance Device Act. These are all uh, uh, different, uh, the Anti-Terrorism Act, even that act, um, in the, and uh, criminal code, pieces of the criminal code indicate you cannot be tracked without your knowledge. So when we say privacy, let's define the type of privacy we're talking about. Are we talking about locational privacy, bodily privacy, informational privacy, etc.? So I don't think privacy is dead because we still have laws in Australia that actually state someone cannot track you without your knowledge or consent. Great. Does anybody else have any other anything they'd like to add to that? The gentleman at the back. So does does that mean that privacy becomes more about an issue of choice, whether you can opt in or opt out of a service rather than just you wear something there, so therefore it's implicit that you, you, you have, you're part of this now. And so is, is that how we need to redefine what privacy, how, how it can exist in this age? Hmm. Opt-in out model. So perhaps the, the panel could, could examine that in the context of if we co-join these two, segue that question into this, they really do marry quite well. Wearable technologies, what changes do you foresee happening in your sector role in the short term, longer term? Can we opt out of this wearable technologies revolution as an educator? I mean, can we just say, no, we'll never have any, any Google Glass? In fact, I had a long discussion with um, Professor Christine Paraxlis in in Toronto, and I, I, I asked her, would you permit um, a student attending your lectures uh, wearing Google Glass? She said, by all means, by all means. In fact, all of my lectures are recorded, they're transmitted and they're reused continuously. So if, if that's another camera, it's no different to the cameras I already have in my room. And then I asked the question, um, do you have the ability to opt out of them or wearing those yourself? And she said, I most certainly do. Will I do that? Probably not. I, I might line up straight away and, and test this theory out immediately. So perhaps we can put that back to the panel and also include that opt-in or opt-out clause. Wearable technologies, what changes do you foresee them happening in your particular sector, Helen, Michael, Stefan, in the shorter term and perhaps the longer term? Um, I think probably in most institutions which are, which are dealing with um, students, younger people, adults, that nothing much will happen until we resolve the privacy issues because when we have a student in the classroom with a camera, a device such as that, or a teacher with a camera and a device such as that, um, we do run into the privacy issues. Uh, and until we can resolve consent and constrain use and all of those issues, um, I think that the wearable technologies might stop us dead as we have been stopped dead in many ways by um, copyright. Mm. Become that sort of level of issue. Um. In the short term, looking directly at that question, uh, not much. I work in the vet sector, as does Stefan, 
Um, the vet sector's probably been, if anyone was a, a leader in this stuff, certainly in terms of wearable technology, um, the vet sector, because of its nature, it's very practical, hands-on. A lot of people work out in remote areas. We've heard reference for that earlier today. So there was a kind of, you know, the need for invention. And so people latched on to point-of-view technology as a way of being able to record the demonstration of a practical skill and send that back to base and assess a teacher would look at it and say, as long as they could prove that it was you, they'd mark it off as dumb. So that stuff's happening, and that's fairly frequent. Frequent, but not widespread. Um, the vet sector, like any other educational sector, is hamstrung by a fairly conservative system in, in all aspects. So things like wearable technology are only going to happen slowly. In the longer term, well, I think it's just one of these, you know, yes, but how? Who knows? And again, I just think we're in a position with this stuff where we have no idea where it's going to go. We have no idea where it's going to take us. It's not going to go away. There's going to be more of it, not less of it, regardless of how we feel about it. Kind of get used to it now, like it or not, because it's just going to become more and more part of our life. And I guess maybe I would like to make the point about the conversation that I think we collectively need to have. And I've got this little kind of quirky notion that I think that we who are alive in the year 2013 in a very global and connected world have an opportunity to do things differently than what was done in the past. I mean, the famous example that gets mentioned is the printing press, and it turned the world on its head. And as people say who look at this period, no one knew at the time, three years after the Gutenberg press was invented, would they have known what it was going to do to the world? No, they wouldn't have had a clue. And only now we look back and we can see what it did. We're in an equivalent time in our history. What is it going to do to us? We don't know. But what we now have the possibility of, potential to do, is track it, pardon the pun, because we've got the technology. We are connected. We can have a conversation about what's happening around the world with each other as it's happening. So hopefully, it'll be more a situation of we will be going into something with a little more awareness than people in past periods of human existence were when their lives were being transformed. We should be being transformed with our eyes open, but I might be just naive. Well, I'm not quite sure I can add a great deal to, to that, Michael. Um, as Michael said, uh, the vet sector, as the edu sector is generally... Uh, an arrester of change, or, or a boardwalk against change, quite often. I think it's a, I think that's partly because it's a, a strategic socialising institution, uh, and uh, the dominant social forces don't want to see uh, it being a promulgator of radical, transient um, changes. So there is an element. I mean, I work in the vet sector, but we're very connected with the school sector. We only had Facebook unblocked in 2011, so. That's a long time after it offered up enormous potentiality for, for education. So I can't imagine we would see wearable technologies being adopted uh, in our institution until it became quite well embedded socially, if you know what I mean. It became normal for people to use this. Like mobile phones, even now, a lot of teachers, a lot of trainers uh, see the mobile phone as the enemy of education. They would like to have a bin at the door where students drop them in. Uh, 
yet they offer up enormous potentiality for educational uh, purposes. I think, I think it, yeah, in the longer term, I think we will see it. There are enormous possibilities for wearable technologies in, a, in an edgy space. Some of the stuff we saw with augmented reality today are just a no-brainer. Um, they're just fantastic affordances from an uh, educational point of view. Uh, I mean, I look at I look at Facebook, for instance, and uh, I was an advocate for social networking in our organisation for since 2005, and I just got no response from uh, from the organisation. Uh, and then one day, I think they suddenly realised we've just got a finger in our dam. We just have to open it up, and they just opened it up, sort of out of the blue. Uh, some small little, you know, untransparent committee. The web filtering committee decide, oh, Facebook, we'll open it up. It's bizarre, you know. Yet I'd spent years writing papers, putting up business cases, blooding my head uh, to no avail. And I think technologies like this will be the same. It will take this sort of groundswell from below uh, for the vested interests in the organisational institutions to, to, to relent. So that, that's my view on it. Just add a, another question to that. The the dam wall had to be open in the case of Facebook and social media because the the prevalence of that stuff in society was such that education had no choice. I think it's interesting to ask: Will wearable computing have that same level of impact, where there'll be no choice? There's a comment at the back. It's it, the microphone's allowing us to record in the back. We're being monitored at the moment. I worked in an institution where a new lecture theatre was built and was specifically built in a way to stop mobile reception so that students weren't distracted. Within two years after it was opened, all of the lecturers were very keen for the students to interact and engage. And so rather than using their mobile phones, they had to get another grant to get clickers. Mm, 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 mm. And we've heard that story time and time again where, where um, that perceived control is, has given birth to new innovation or new service, in fact. Um, and perhaps, Michael, that's also that's a, that's a very good point, very good point. And also, not only that, but clickers also being used as a mechanism of analysis for whether people were in attendance or not. And as Katina and I discovered with, within the University of Wollongong itself, talking about the monitoring of uh, people from far away and, and actually how acute that surveillance camera actually is. It can drill down to pores on your face, it's that acute. So it's around um, uh, the levels as to where, what we accept and what we don't. And can you imagine being in a position where in order for you to answer, for, for us to make this comment, that I have to commission something for your desk and you've got to press a button at your desk to be able to say something. So sometimes technology's interventionist isn't beneficial in a way. So the next question that we're addressing here is... I think this is where we were heading to as well. What and how will we guide the change where automated wearable technologies appear in the educational context? Can you picture it where a learner may say to you, I'm wearing this device because of my own personal security. It's not about privacy. This is my data. It's not going into a social media environment. My Fitbit track doesn't go out, out elsewhere. 
This data is for me. I wear this particular camera because if I'm assaulted in the corridor, I have a greater chance of identifying who it was that assaulted me than any other random black and white surveillance camera elsewhere on this educational campus. I don't want to be escorted. I'm wearing the technology for my own personal sense of security and safety. So what and how will we guide the change where automated wearable technologies appear in the educational context? Michael. Michael, I'm going to ignore the educational context, Alex, and just life generally. Mm -hmm. um, I said last night kind of jokingly, but I can imagine myself in a situation where if someone is in my classroom or in, I mean, like this, I'll wear Google Glass, I'll say, turn it off, please, take it off. Take it off. Sorry, I'm not going to play. If you want to be in this group, take it off. And I often think about a cafe that I went to many years ago, but it was years after mobile phones <clears throat> had taken over our lives. There was a sign on the counter, if you want to be served, turn off your phone. And I thought, fantastic, self-regulation. These people have decided, and that's kind of... And hasn't there been a lot of conversation about people who use their phones when you're with them? We talk about this all the time, unofficially. X does that all the time, it's really annoying. Or I tell these people to turn off their phone. Anyway, we've had that conversation about that stuff. <clears throat> um, years ago, um, let's just... mind-ordering substances, which could have been alcohol. A friend who I used to see regularly came to see me and we had, a, we had an afternoon together and he said at the end of it, it's been really nice being with you today. And I said, why? And he said, because you're straight. For the first time in many years, you're, you haven't taken anything and we're on the same level. I'm wearing this. You and me are not on the same level. I'm playing on my phone. You don't have one. We're not on the same level. It's a disconnect. It's not a thing that embraces connection in a physical face-to-face -face sense. And I think that's the thing I'd be careful of as both a teacher and a, as a student, as a person, where is what I'm wearing or doing getting in the way of me having a real authentic connection of value with the person I guess. Where is it getting in the way? If it's getting in the way, turn it off and throw it away. Right, well that's a controversial proposition. Uh, yeah. I, I think, I guess it will depend to the degree to which these uh, technologies become pervasive and ubiquitous. Uh, I think today one would be hard pressed to tell students not to use their phones in a classroom. I know that probably still, does still happen, but I, I think it's, I don't think it's right. Because I think, um, like even a mobile phone, when I'm talking to someone, I can grab the phone and I can gather information that enhances uh, the experience I'm having with the person. So in that sense, it's not a barrier. It's actually facilitating the communication, the engagement. Uh, so I think, yeah, I don't know that I have a real answer to this. I think how will we guide the change? Um, yeah, I think the sorts of things, I suppose, that uh, Katrina talked about will obviously play a part there. There's a regulatory and a, a policy framework that we'll have to take into account. I mean, you know, you're wearing this device. It's interesting, I mean, typically, I don't know what the law is, but do you have to actually notify that you're filming somebody? Um, 
Well, that's a good question. Uh, I suppose it would, I would say it's a public space, but if it's... So, no, yeah. Typically, yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, I, I think, you know, the mobile phones now are just so pervasive that to try to say to people, don't take a photograph, it's just not possible. <laughs> you just can't do it, um, really. I, there's so many people taking pictures now. And I think, on the whole, that's been a good thing. I mean, there are so many instances where um, there has been a, you know, a, a good outcome as a result of pictures being taken from multiple angles, multiple perspectives. That multiplicity of uh, photography has been been a good thing, and it, you know, it does. I, I guess you know, I was back to what you were talking about. That about privacy and radical transparency was what you were talking about. That with uh, you were talking about um, what's his name, uh, Jeff Jarvis. This idea of radical transparency is a good thing because the only people who want to hide things are people who are, have vested interests, who are you know tend to be institutionalised, embedded powers. I mean, we've seen the whole thing with the. With the with the government's over over step overreach of the use of uh, data collection, um, prism whatever, um, so that so radical transparency both at an institutional and a personal level, you know, enhances freedom. That it's it's about the radical, it's about radical freedom. So I can sort of see that perspective as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, like I said, I don't really have an answer to that. It, it'll it'll it really depend to the degree to which they become pervasive. I think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, yeah. 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 Well, that's fine. Yeah. yeah I'm actually, I, actually, just on that. I mean, it's an interesting thing. The reason why I didn't get into Facebook initially was because it was a closed platform. In two thousand and five. I really embraced the idea of the open web. I really felt that there was a tremendous imaginary power that was behind connection, collaboration and sharing. And I can remember, you know, I really took on board this idea of capture everything, open everything and share everything. And you know, that was everything against what my institution was about, which was to, that everything was in silos, uh, that we, we lived behind a firewall, that we didn't share anything. And so I really felt that, uh, you know, that, that whole idea of collaboration and connection had a, a tremendous power to it. And, you know, having been greatly influenced also by this idea of radical democracy, the idea that at the end of the day, if for, for human freedom ultimately is going to lie in the hands of free citizens globally, not, not citizens that are encumbered by nation states uh, that are controlled by vested interests, but by humans radically connecting as free, uh, free agents globally. And you know the whole the whole issue that's happened in you know with the with the, in the Middle East is perhaps an example of that. Um, but so in that sense, I really thought that opening up everything was a really good thing. Now, would, would I would open up my wallet to you, uh, to you, Katrina? Yes, I would. Um, I, I don't have an issue with that. Um, and in actually, in some ways, 
having my PIN code, I suppose you could rack up a lot of debt, but actually I wouldn't be liable for it. Although perhaps if the bank knew I'd given it to you, they might think, think differently about it. Um, but I suppose it's also about trust, and that's the other thing. You know, yes, I would let you go through my wallet because I guess there's an element of trust there. Mm. Uh, so uh, I guess there is that issue about privacy and trust, and that's the other aspect of modernity as well, which a lot of people have talked about, uh, that, that our concept of trust has changed. So we, we trust in abstract systems. We get on a plane, we have a sort of trust. Well, faith has disappeared and it's been replaced by trust. Trust in rational abstract systems. We no longer have, we don't, we don't get on a plane and have a sort of religious faith that it's going to not crash. We trust it's not going to crash because there's some science behind it that we can perhaps have come to understand, although not fully, but we've come to understand and trust its foundational knowledge in some way. So, uh, well, it's an interesting question, and I, I actually, you know, I've thought this about GPS stuff, and I've been a real personally been a big, uh, you know, user of Foursquare, and I, I check in a lot in Facebook, and I've often thought that actually I, I would, not spoke with Michael about this other night, I could easily be robbed, because people would know while I'm away, they know when I'm away, they actually know when I'm going to come back because they could track my journey back. And when I go into Google and I look at my location history, I just get this fantastic map of where I've been. I'm like a rat going to work and then occasionally I go somewhere else. And there's, I, I actually love that. I, maybe I'm sick, but I love that. <laughs> uh, I just think it's beautiful. I just, no, I'm just fascinated by it. Fascinated by this history of myself. I don't know. So, and that's a, that's a classic example, one, of, one that I don't subscribe to, and Stefan knows that for the very reason. But uh, without that wearable technology, that journey would not be evident to you, nor would it be evident to your network. Hmm. So essentially that, um, as I call it, a handheld technology, I don't see the phone as a, as a, as a wearable technology, I see it as a handheld it's, uh, it can be born on the body, but it's not necessarily wearable. But the facilities within it reveal a lot, that data chain. Perhaps, Helen, have you got a, any um, response to this particular question? I'd be very interested from the CSU policing, and you know, you're very involved with your team with this. You can I ignore the automated part if you want. <laughs> I think, um, you know, as an educator, the question that with all technologies is can I use them to make or to help my learners learn better and that very much depends on what kind of a technology it is, what it afford, affordances are, whether it's, you know, I presume an iWatch would have some kind of internet interface, how can I use that to make learning more fun, more interesting, more engaging? How can I make that useful for bringing more information into the classroom than I would ever have or in a distance context pointing uh, people into the field, into the big environment to get their learning context. That's what interests me, not in the sense of any of those other things. It's like, okay, we've got it, the, the students are using it, what can we do to advantage them in their education with the devices that they like to use? Mm -hmm. So I think that's from an educator's point of view, that's where it comes with me. A comment at the back there. 
I just thought it was interesting talking about the students then. I think it'd be great to get a student congress view on some of these questions because someone who works with high school and I suppose the whole five to to 18, um, I'm always amazed at their answers to these questions. So if I was doing the cyberbullying thing at our school, I thought, oh, well, what a crazy idea. I'll get the students' perspective on it. And their concept of what cyberbullying was was vastly different mm. to what our concept of cyberbullying was as a school. So then we were given this really interesting, I suppose, question was, well, who's this policy really for? Is it for them? Is it for the parents who demand it? Is it for us as teachers who need to regulate it? And I think the privacy one comes up with that too. When I'm talking, you know, we did this whole thing about digital natives to digital citizens and that whole concept um, within the department. But their view on privacy is going to be, I would imagine, and I'm probably speaking on their behalf without having them here, which is a little bit ironic, but it would be very different as well. And I know that we've really grappled with this as school communities, is what's the best way to... Um, their, their minors and we're educating them, you know, or however you want to look at that and um, how much choice do we give them within that and how much guidance do they need. But by the same token, I think that when we've empowered them by developing their own policies around privacy and around cyberbullying, we've seen a significant decrease in the amount of incidents we've had. Now, I think without having done a a concerted study on that, that, that's very anecdotal and there's probably some questions around that, but I think it'd be great to get a student congress perspective on this and that might be something, you know, to consider. A natural natural segue. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great um, and logical extension as to where policy falls behind Mm. the practical reality. I think the kids will guide, I know in my school, the kids guide a lot of this stuff. On schools I've worked in, I'll drive it. So if you were to mention to the, if you were to reveal to them that you were perhaps a wearable technologies advocate with your own data chain for your own personal reason, or even the term wearable technologies, perhaps that would be totally foreign to them, but perhaps not. We have another comment. Just quickly, it's funny you say that. I've often gone in there and said, oh, you guys are doing really innovative stuff, and they'll look at you and go, really? It's innovative to you, it's not so much to us. Um, Really different in terms of their view of being an online, having an online uh, person was very different to their person in terms of face-to-face interactions. So they saw some of the issues that we see as cyberbullying as much more acceptable and, and, as, and as a cohort too. This wasn't individualised, but as a cohort, they were much more willing to engage. It was almost like there was a spectrum. If you said something on Facebook, it was like, oh, whatever, you know, they were kind of a bit blase about it. If you texted it, it was a little bit more serious. You said it face-to-face, they took that a lot more seriously. So that was one of the issues we had to navigate was their um, identification with how they were communicating with each other. And they genuinely saw that. So we were punishing people punitively for things they were saying on Facebook um, when they just, no one cared. No one was being hurt, offended, or taking it in any way to heart. 
but we had to because of our policies. We were suspending students when the victim didn't even care or had even noticed in some instances. So that was an interesting experiment. It was an interesting observation for us to really look at, well, if, what's happening there? Is that bureaucratic? Is that the social, the social nature of that? And we really had to work hard on that. And that was really risky. We had to engage the parent community a lot because when we started saying to the parent community, well, the kids don't see... Um, certain things as bullying, you do, but they don't. Mm. I was just going to put a comment on the table which relates to all of the questions that we've been asked um, or been posed to the panel this afternoon, that I would consider that much of this is underpinned by accountability mm -hmm. and that accountability in some contexts is overt, some contexts covert, sometimes conscious, sometimes subconscious and of course relates very much to your students about the perception and that perception of accountability. Um, I was thinking of the very first one about the privacy, like our privacy has been eroded by the accountabilities that we are now um, you know, required to um, meet, if you like, in all different contexts, whether it be educationally, whether it be in our social environment. Just putting mm. the thought out there. That's interesting how even the very agents that seek the accountability, when they are made accountable, say Snowden within the, the prison context or others, as we learned, the prison is only one of many, many projects uh, in that respect, is that that total tip of control from accountability to transparency shifts things markedly. Um, well, I suppose kind of continuing on both of these comments in, is it the role of the institution to kind of start defining these, the limitations and mm. the spaces and purposes of technology? I think from my own personal experience, it seems like, and, and my job is about technology, so I've kind of just been adopting mm -hmm. religiously for five years as a professional, just whatever's new, I'm in it. And it's... <laughs> I think the last two years I've started going, you know what, I have to start choosing this because everything is competing for my time and effort. So how I use Facebook is basically I defriended anyone that lives near me except my closest friends who I want to interact with on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And the only people are left are people from overseas because Facebook is a really easy way to, to interact with them. Everyone else, I don't really care because like their news feed was just scroll, scroll, scroll until something interesting comes along. And the same with, with Twitter. And it's like you can, the, the social network is something that you can construct. It's not something you're just thrown into. Mm. And I'm starting to think, you know, we do need, this is the kind of conversations that institutions have. Maybe it's not banning or controlling because that's kind of useless, but saying this is when a, using a mobile phone in classroom is worthwhile. This is when it has a purpose. And I, I think this kind of goes to a, a, a bigger discussion we're having at CSU is what is an institution? Because... CSU isn't a traditional one because two-thirds of our students don't use any of our campus facilities. They don't exist in a, a physical space. Mm. So what normally defines a university is the grounds that it lives on and the buildings and that, those, that kind of infrastructure. Our students don't have any sense of that. So what is the, the institution? And I think the kind of common thread that keeps coming back is it's this environment that we, we mm. create. And the, the environment is something that we define and we can kind of construct that out of the, what we what we consider purposeful, what we consider worthwhile, those kind of values. 
And it's kind of ephemeral, but like maybe that's what institutions really, that's their role in, in this whole discussion, is to start defining some of those purposes. Mm. Those frameworks for where, as I call it, educative arrangement actually occurs. It's not bound by a, uh, a, um, an architectural form that's hard. It's more an open space. Um, we had a, a comments from Danny earlier about the, the learning management system uh, capacity to sustain beyond, I'm hearing some quite disastrous foresight figures as to where an LMS might exist within even five years' time. So if we think of, I'll throw this back to the panel, um, if this is a virtual environment, these are about coalescing um, learners and educators in a way that's meaningful, that's useful, um, that transcends the current models of how we silo information. Consider this, Moodle, Google Glass. Are they commensurate cousins or is this just chaos? To the panel. Yeah, yeah. if you have a, a direct comment on that. Sorry, I was, I was just going to pick up on some points that have been made around the room. Firstly mm. on the uh, accountability issue. It seems that with the access to such technology, it seems that you people are able to say things in the technical environment, on Twitter, on Facebook, that you would not say to people face to face. Mm. So there's some loss of accountability and responsibility when we're use, using those tools. The other thing Helen pointed out was about wearing the wearable technologies, that you, you're concerned that we would become less mindful of the fact that we're actually wearing them and that your the importance to you was to protect your identity. And on the other side of the coin, I, I worry whether those wearable technologies will there'll be a dependency where people become addicted to them like they do with their phones and checking emails. Mm -hmm. So we may become mindful, we may become so dependent on that we can't live without it. It also goes to protecting your identity in that you're able to manipulate those images that are captured in the wearable device, which allows you to create a persona that may not actually be authentic, like people do in Second Life. And so how do we know, then, as Stefan says, it's all about trust. Mm. How do we know who we're interacting with is actually the person, the real authentic person? which opens the door for what we have in terms of Twitter trolls and online pedophiles. Mm -hmm. That's some very, very big, heavy-duty things that we've covered in a very short period of time. So this is what I was saying this morning. I'm glad that we got past the presentations to the actual talking point. That's what this is about. Stefan, this is very important. There's, a, there's a, an online community that are going to be listening to this conversation as a podcast. Right post this. We know that this podcast gets interacted with quite well from cross-sectors. It's not just defined by one sector. It's a cross-sectoral conversation we're engaged in here individually and people will listen to this. If we consider wearable technologies, I'm addressing the last question, if we're addressing, if we're thinking of wearable technologies in terms of camera systems, sensor networks, body, body sensor networks, um, technologies which will provide and will become normalised in the educational context. And when I say educational context, I'm taking up um, your point around 
the fact it's not bound by a physical defined institutional space. These could be workplace settings, these could be on the train on the way from one setting to another in a virtual space. Where do we, des what are we now going to design for? And addressing your point too also. These wearable technologies in open up a different type of relatedness that we're going to somehow have to try and um, address. And as I said this morning, this is not years away, this is months away. I stood directly in the eyeline of somebody who was a Google Glass wearer, and I noticed something, and this is what you're going to notice too. Is in the past, if I had if I had a conversation with somebody and I felt that it was rude that they were constantly down here, constantly down on there, this, as I had um, experienced in Finland, was they had a little glass cabinet inside the Alto Media Lab as you walk in. There used to be all sorts of devices and things in there, like, an art, like a sort of museum. They only had one this time. It was an Apple keyboard with an old, old wooden peg on the shift key. And it had a little didactic symbol, a little sign next to it. It said circa 2012, because I'd arrived there 2013. The whole of that facility, they have a random sample image. They have plasma screens on the wall. And your, your desktop could be randomly shown into the actual corridor. Can you imagine if your desktop, what you were doing at any given time in your workplace, was randomly sampled to whomever happened to pass publicly through your corridor? What does that do for what you do? The, the actual artifact, what it was pointing at is that this tactile sensorium iPad generation and stuff is finished. We're now into gestural control. We're into augmented uh, environments and intelligent systems. They're designing for the current, what they perceive is going to be a very, very sharp and current shift towards these environments. And back to the analogy of the conversation at ISTAS 13. When you actually talk with a person who's wearing Google Glass, they break their eyeline and eyesight with you repeatedly. They're constantly looking up. They're constantly breaking their affinity cycle with you. In our culture, we know that direct eye contact is about an acute affinity with each other within the conversation. If we're constantly looking away, so the next level is going to be looking up and away. So if we're constantly looking up and away, that's perhaps another thing that we need to encounter, or perhaps it's a good thing. We have to design for that. Can we design Moodle to fit into somehow with Google Glass? How, where does Glass and Moodle fit together? Because currently there's a lot of money tied up in Moodle and content in Moodle. So somehow we've got to get that content reusable in some way. Anyway, I'm being very provocative, but Stefan, what do you think? Right. Well, I actually didn't think the LMS would survive Web 2.0 revolution, but it did and actually had a resurgence. So uh, whether it will survive Google Glass, I suspect it will. It's like a virus that seems to not go away. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, uh, I thought a lot about Moodle and whether whether... I mean, I think Michael and I were talking, we, we thought Moodle probably would last another five years. I wondered whether it would survive the mobile revolution because it, it does sort of, the whole LMS, you know, it, it educators love the LMS because it, it's simple and it's easy and, you know, the, I've, my own experience with educators is they find 
the collaborative model difficult to deal with. It's a lot more work, it's a lot harder, there's a lot more investment to have to be involved in the distributive co uh, collaborative model. Uh, you, have to be, you have to be present in a more, uh, more um, engaged way, I think. And you have to also have a strong digital identity to be involved in, uh, involved in a, that more sort of collaborative, connectivist um, social engagement model of teaching. The LMS gives you this sort of institutionalised, you're the teacher, defined role, you have all the power and the student does have as much power as you. So in a, in a way the LMS reflects that old uh, educational, 19th century educational model of the classroom, the primacy of the teacher. Um, and, I mean that's an old debate about the, the LMS. But whether Google Glass, I mean, I don't see them as antithetical. Um, I could imagine that, you know, in a vet context, Google Glass offers up a tremendous opportunity for live, real-time assessment. Uh, it's one of the real challenges we have in the vet sector to be able to do a remote, supervised, live assessments. And for me, it's the holy grail to be able to do that. And Google Glass offers, offers that up. And if that can be recorded, and it can be placed in, in Moodle, uh, then that's great. I, I wouldn't see it as, as a threat. A threat. Um, I suppose, I guess, where you've got continuous connectivity, do you need to... I mean, the thing about Moodle is it's the idea that learning somehow is segmented. So, oh, I'm going to go and do some learning now, so I'm going to go and log into Moodle. Whereas with Google Glass, you're just there all the whole time. So everything in life becomes a mediated learning possibility. So if you're working through the workplace, suddenly you get an alert in Google Glass saying, here's an assessment opportunity. You actually need this competency fulfilled. Actually, we can identify a, a, a particularly salient opportunity to fulfill this competency. Would you like to do an, act would you like to do an assessment? Your, your assessor is available. Okay, great, okay. And you do, suddenly do the assessment. Competency achieved. Thank you, your assessment has been recorded. AQTF. <laughs> That's really, well, the sort of yeah, responsible service of alcohol, it might be. I mean, I'll preface my comment with I know next to nothing about hairdressing, but it's about perspective. Like, I, you could use Google Glass to look at, say, hand position, Scissor use for argument's sake, blades, whatever else they use. Uh, but sometimes it's also about coming back in a different perspective. So, I mean, you can gather that different perspective with another device. That's fine. And it might be able to connect to the same thing which you can send it off. But, so the assessment sometimes uh, needs to involve other devices. You know? So I just say that the device is going to have lots of uses like that. Spot on. But I think that also sometimes you need to revert back to something else. Hmm. The right tools at the right time. We must make a you know a disclaimer here. We're not selling Google Glass, and in no ways do we endorse the actual product or uh, the organisation, even though everybody logs in and it's their second brain. But we should perhaps preface that with digital eyewear, because there are many many different providers of digital eyewear, and they, and they have digital eyewear that's specific to specific CMSs in specific detail. In fact, the policing have their own uh, trials on across Australia with, with corporate providers from around the world for 
data going back into evidence.com, which is the central provider. If you haven't been to evidence.com, just follow the trail backwards and work out where it ends up. It ends up in your lap if you're from the policing department. We know that. So, um, Michael. I think Danny and Mark, Matt, it was Danny who was talking, gave a really eloquent description of why Moodle, in many senses, any learning management system, is irrelevant to truly disruptive, groundbreaking, innovative learning. And first thing this morning, I forget your name, you mentioned the bring your own device phenomenon, which is having that, the effect of personalization, moving away from the, the, um, the institutionalized approach of tools and, and approaches. So there's a number of things happening where these disruptive technologies are forcing people down a more individual path, which makes it more and more difficult to house that activity inside a learning management system, which is an institutionalized approach. And I can hear a colleague of mine whispering in my ear, and I'm at, well, she's not in my ear really, but some of you might know Alison Miller, who worked very closely in the e-portfolio space, and all of a sudden I'm thinking e-portfolios, e-portfolios, the the personal equivalent of the LMS. But I just want to say one more thing about the LMS because I really think its days are numbered. I'm not prepared to put a year or a number of days on that, day on that because I think the number of functions that they have at the moment are being eroded. And it's interesting to actually strip back the what's the absolutely crucial thing that has to happen in an LMS. And it really comes back to grades, stuff about assessment, and you could argue, well, that could be public, and personal communication between teacher and student. Everything else may as well be open. So those two things need to be kept private. The rest, why have an LMS? There's a whole lot of other tools out there that do all the other things that LMS does much better. Yep, have to agree with that one. Um, but in terms of the portfolio, I think that's where the wearable technologies might lead us because we mm. then curate, present, and store and reuse the mm. data that we are creating. Mm -hmm. And that's where the things like Aquella, Learning Object Management Systems, that that might be the big system that institutions hold because it transacts in learning resources. And other mechanisms might assemble those resources or guide students to assemble those resources into learning experiences. Those resources will be key because they are um, quality controlled hopefully, um, created in a reusable format, and they are managed. So the teacher can be anywhere, the student can be anywhere. If they're all connected, then they can connect to the resource and we can just bypass the LMS entirely, perhaps. Um, but we need the resource, we need the teacher, and we need the student, and we all still need to be connected some way. I can see a few um, coffee symbols starting to emerge about bubbles across people's heads there. We have a few comments. There's a comment at the back there. Um, mine's more of a comment. Last year I was in America and I read an article on the site, I hope this is the right word, the psychosis that came out of continuous use of on the, on being online. I just wonder where, if we, where a glass, Google Glass would take it. If that's the trouble you're having now, what's it going to be like when these come in in 10, 20 years' time? And it was a fascinating article to see that people were so addicted and so dependent on it. Where does this go? Where does this take us? Well, I, I must... Um, I, I must... Absolutely. In terms of 
aug-mediated reality, not necessarily augmented, where we're placing content that's beneficial, but aug-mediated, where we choose what we want to filter through that. Therefore, the device becomes a normalized, um, necessary, useful device, much like our phone is. It has a series of apps we add into it, and we, we shape it to what we want in our experience. It might be frightening to hear, but there's 2.6 million of these devices already created and ready for distribution. So it, it, the actual nature of the addiction of connection to network already is with us. We have them. I mean, if I ask the room here, who of you doesn't own a mobile phone? <laughs> That's it. We know that. But then again, out of the last, out of everyone that has this particular device, this network device, which is about this addiction to connection, which one of you sleep with it tucked in under the side of your bed and monitor your sleep? I do. Who is it that uses it as a pedometer to track where and trace where their route of communication is and where they get to? We start to see some puzzled looks and people go, what the? What? Why would you do such a thing? These and this networked addiction effect are going to come, all it is, as I have seen, what I've visualized and actually seen physically in a physical sense and been with people that like Professor Steve Mann there in Toronto, he's wearing has been wearing a filter and a prism and device for the last twenty years. All it is is that the network is now available to us in our point of view. So addiction is that we won't we will have to opt in or opt out of that closeness of this network. Currently it's handheld. We can place it away. Even though I know I never go without that anywhere. It never really disappears out of within 10 metres of where I am. So the network currently is over here at furthest. At most it's in my pocket. I used to put it right up against my head. I don't anymore. I earbud it out of there. But imagine, can you imagine having your phone and your network and your Facebook updates right here? We've got people that are saying this would be great. Does anybody else have an opinion? Does anybody really think that they would in entirely object to having the network right here? There's a number of people that indicate that would be a... There's a comments as well. Uh, more a question on, uh, on behavioralism, if you like. If you think about uh, a very large proportion of our society cannot walk a straight line down the street with their mobile phone in their hand. <laughs> now, addiction or no addiction, what we see is, is a certain behaviour or, or inward, uh, I, I guess, a, a significant case of caught up in your own head, so you're bumping into things. Some might argue that Google Glass or digital eyewear may start to overcome that because people aren't as disengaged from what's in front of them. Others would say it's going to exacerbate that existing problem. <laughs> Where to? Over to you. Well, uh, again, uh, one of the largest, or one of the working in the industry, I know that Navman is one of the biggest um, um, industry interests in terms of that, so that you can navigate your way through their filter. So you don't have to look down to steer your car or look to the side to steer your car. It's directly what you're looking through. So this is, this is the nature of where innovation will take that. So the more we explore scenarios of benefit, we also have to consider what some of the socio-ethical considerations are for around that as well. Um, many of the devices that we're seeing within the digital eyewear space are in actual fact a wearable um, 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 
um, um, number plate recognised camera, or that these digital eyewears, in fact, are a, a QR code scanner built in as well. So whatever we see and currently use in a handheld context will be collapsed into a wearable context. This is happening quite quickly. So I take your point. Perhaps it might improve some parts of what we do. And perhaps not as well. Um, I was going to say, like, if you, if you are interested about a kind of vision of the future, there's a sci-fi series that came out of the UK called The Black Mirror. And not yes. all episodes are relevant to this. Um, but there's a couple where, one is where they've like embedded a chip that records your everyday life and and what are the repercussions of that. And there was another one where uh, the, this company came out with the ability to clone a human being based on all the information that came from their social networks and whether that can they can recreate a real person out of what you put on Facebook and Twitter. Um, but, you know, so, so there's some interesting kind of ideas about that. But I suppose the kind of interesting thing about this point was from whose perspective are we talking about mm. them being cousins or chaos? Because from an institutional perspective, all this looks like chaos. But the, the, the kind of linking thread through all this is a student. Mm -hmm. Because they'll use Moodle and then they'll go to Google Glass and then they'll pick up this and move to this system. And from their perspective, they want all this to be seamless. And they, want, they don't want chaos, I suppose. And when they get chaos, it's a poor experience from their perspective. So mm. I, I suppose it's... It, we're quite often used to kind of implementing technology from the, an institution's perspective, but maybe we need to flip that around and go, well, hang on, how is this going to work for our students? And do we need to implement technology from their perspective rather than the business? Mm. It was very close to what the gentleman next to you was saying as well. Um, I do think we should have a break. We have some coffee and then we have uh, a few words. Uh, Associate Professor Katina Michael is going to... Um, uh, perhaps give us a few salient points and engage us further in, in a, a, a quick discussion. Then we have a, our host, Lee, who is going to show us a number of multimedia presentations and perhaps give us an idea as to what he's interested in and what's happening in the surface space around other forms of glass as well. So let's have a coffee and then we'll come back. Uh, toilet break. Thank you very much to the panel for all their uh, feedback. Excellent. Thank you.